I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to another episode of the Policy Forum pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and its region. I'm Maya Bandari and I'm delighted to be back with you again. Policy Forum and this podcast are produced at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, the region's leading public policy school. It's also a really beautiful place to be at this time of year, especially with all of the trees changing colour. And you can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au. So today is a very special podcast featuring two distinct and important sections, both looking at one significant issue. It's an issue that is gaining increasing importance in policy circles and among the region's governments, the concept of the Indo-Pacific. The Indo-Pacific is set to be the new term of reference that combines the literal states of the Indian and the Pacific Oceans. It may lead to the death of the Asia-Pacific as a recognised term to describe the region, and it will be the start of some new and interesting regional dynamics. On the pod, we'll be hearing from a range of speakers, all with very different views on the topic. And these views show just how rapidly developing, contentious and confusing this new concept is. This podcast will be slightly longer than usual, as it will consist of two parts. The first is a public talk delivered by Professor Rory Medcalf recently, here at Crawford School, where he discusses the Indo-Pacific concept and what it might mean for Australia and the region's politics and policy. After Rory, we'll play you a lively conversation I recorded earlier with two leading experts, David Brewster and Denise Fisher, where we dive even deeper into the issue. It's a really interesting discussion and it's well worth sticking around for. But first, let's have a listen to Rory's talk on the Indo-Pacific. This speech was delivered on Monday the 21st of May at an event put on by Policy Forum and the ANU National Security College. If you weren't able to get along and you haven't watched the video on our Facebook page, you might also have missed our exciting news. That news, announced by Crawford School Director Professor Helen Sullivan, is that Policy Forum will soon have a new special section. That section will be dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Indo-Pacific and will be guest edited by Rory Medcalf himself. We're really looking forward to seeing that come online. Rory is the head of the National Security College at the ANU. He's been at the college since 2015 and his professional background before that involves almost three decades of experience across diplomacy, intelligence, think tanks and journalism. The talk that you're about to hear takes a look at the future of the Indo-Pacific and the challenges that Australia and the region will be faced with as this concept comes into practice. It's well worth a listen. If you were there or if you have watched our live stream coverage already and prefer to skip straight through to our post-event discussion with David and Denise, then skip forward about 50 minutes. But before we hear from Rory, I would like to quickly thank everyone who sent in questions over social media. It's really great to hear your thoughts and they're good questions that make my job easier. I was able to pitch them to our academics in the second part of the pod and you can hear their views in the later discussion. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback from this podcast or any of our other podcasts. 
You can find us on Twitter, where we are at Policy Forum, or on Facebook, Asia Pacific Policy Society, or you can always email us. Our email is podcast at policyforum.net. So now let's listen to what Rory has to say about the Indo-Pacific. And after that, I'll be back with a lively debate that unpacks this concept a bit more. We'll explore some of the anxiety, criticisms and confusion that surround the practicalities of the Indo-Pacific. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Helen. That's a, a very kind introduction. Um, and I'm really privileged to see in the room today so many uh, with expertise, with experience, uh, with policy wisdom on these very issues. So in the question and answer session to follow, I look forward to learning from you. Um, and I'm very honoured as well to see such a distinguished gathering of the diplomatic corps uh, from across the Indo-Pacific region and beyond. Now, I want to begin uh, at the end with some of my key conclusions. So if you remember nothing else of this evening, please take a few of these thoughts away with you. First, uh, the Indo-Pacific is Australia's region. It is literally where we are, between the Indian and the Pacific Oceans. Usually I have maps to bore my students with, but I decided to uh, keep the focus on the words this evening. But the Indo-Pacific is literally where we are and where we see ourselves to be. Maps matter when it comes to policy. And the mental maps, uh, the, uh, the maps in the minds of policymakers matter. They inform priorities, they influence decisions. So for this country, an Indo-Pacific policy is an authentically and bipartisan Australian policy. It is not an abstraction. It is not an allies imposition. It's an independent foreign policy defined by Australia's geography. Second, the Indo-Pacific is not, by definition, inherently anti-China. This is a region in which China is rising. It is a region in which other countries the rest of us, shall we say, want to see China and its interests incorporated in ways that do not fundamentally harm or challenge the interests of other sovereign states. Nor is the Indo-Pacific fundamentally pro-America, come what may. Of course, it is important, in my view, that whatever the vicissitudes of Trump's America, of Australia's ally, the United States is developing its own comprehensive policy for renewed engagement in this region. If you read the US national security strategy, it is avowedly Indo-Pacific in the way it defines priorities, and it is a document that, in my view, will outlast Donald Trump. Pacific Command in Honolulu is being formally renamed Indo-Pacific Command to reflect its enduring defence engagement in the Indian Ocean. Now, of course, America's Indo-Pacific priorities need to be much more than military. They need to outlast the Trump presidency, and I think they will. But without question, uncertainty about US behaviour is one of the drivers of Australia's new policy of diversifying partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region. So the key question related to that point in this town, I think, is about Australia's own interests in a connected region, a connected Indian Ocean and Pacific, Indo-Pacific region, and the inextricable nature of the relationship between those interests and our national values 
as articulated in the Foreign Policy White Paper last year. Values of a liberal democracy, of rule of law, of equality, of mutual respect. And as Australia goes on to build policies of mutual respect with others in the region, we need to begin with a policy of national self-respect with an emphasis on the sovereignty of Australian decision-making. Mutual respect, by definition, is impossible without self-respect. The fourth take-home I would begin with is that the dynamic of power and rules in our region is a long game, and a country like Australia needs to be very careful about setting long-term strategic precedents with decisions that are based on panic or the parochialism of the present. If, for example, some other countries presently have somewhat better dialogue with China than we have, good for them. The wheel will turn. So, we need to play a long game, avoid false choices, binary choices, and instead make the many-sided nature of this region, the multipolarity of the Indo-Pacific, work for us. Finally, five, my fifth takeaway at the very start. It's not good enough for Australia or anyone else to have a merely declaratory Indo-Pacific policy. We need to translate policy into strategy, connecting ends and means, that is, building up national capabilities, and I don't mean only in defence, and a willingness to face obstacles. So, they're the five takeaways. Let's now unpack the slightly ambitious title of this evening's presentation uh, towards an Indo-Pacific strategy. Now, let's assume for a moment that the Indo-Pacific is more than an abstraction, or as one Beijing-based business consultant uh, most picantly called it last week, an Orwellian concept. The Indo-Pacific is the expansive two-ocean region around us, with the busy sea lanes of Asia at its core. I will properly try to explore the definition a little further on, but the main point for now is it's a big place. Okay, that's the Indo-Pacific. What is strategy? Well, strategy is about connecting ends, ways and means, what you want to do with what you have with which to do it. And of course, we know that ends can be infinite and means never. But strategy is more than a plan. Strategy is what is required when others might frustrate one's plans because they have different and possibly opposing interests and concerns. So, here is our problem. It will be difficult for a power like Australia to protect and advance its interests in a region as vast as the Indo-Pacific. And it will be impossible to do so alone. The region is an arena of increased competition among powers great and growing. There was a time, perhaps a decade ago, when the jury was out on whether the region's strategic future would be one of cooperation or competition. At the moment, it's very hard to see it as being anything other than competition. The only country in this region with anything resembling a comprehensive Indo-Pacific strategy at present is China, which is ironic uh, given that China is a country that is uncomfortable with that terminology. And the official line from China is to call the region something else, the Maritime Silk Road. Now, as its power grows, China will have sometimes different interests, concerns and indeed values from our own. So why not, as a middle power like Australia, why not just step back? All we need to do then, some would say, is reduce our ambitions. And by this logic, let's rein in our exaggerated sense of what actually matters. Shrink that mental map of the region in which we operate so that ends and means align 
and we don't get in anyone's way. Thus, a smaller Australia, diminishing in relative economic and military and diplomatic heft, would only try to make a difference in, say, Southeast Asia or the South Pacific. There's a problem with this. In a connected region and a connected world, no nation is an island. Indeed, no island is an island. This applies to defence and security, trade and investment, aid and development, and the interplay of power and wealth in what is now being called geoeconomics. It also applies to the international system of rules and the power and the diplomacy that connects all of these elements. The bottom line is we cannot hide. Australia's interests are intimately linked to the wider Indo-Pacific. And so, for instance, the question about how to engage with China's growing power and influence are now matters that Australia must face in the immediate South Pacific neighbourhood, as I believe uh, President Xi Jinping's forthcoming visit to New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, uh, for APEC this year will show. And our external policies can no longer be divorced from the integrity of our domestic institutions and our sovereign decision-making, where foreign powers do seek to exert influence. However, the scale of the Indo-Pacific can work to our advantage, because many countries in the region face similar challenges. Now, good policy needs patience, so please give me a little while to get back to the point, which is, of course, what to do, because there are some interesting and necessary ports of call uh, on this evening's little voyage around the Indo-Pacific. So, back to definitions. What is the Indo-Pacific? Well, let's unpack that a bit further. In my view, it's a region defined by multipolarity and connectivity, the centre of strategic and economic gravity in a globalised world. The Indo-Pacific idea treats as one connected strategic system what were hitherto seen as two very separate Asian regions. East Asia, centred on China and lapped by the Pacific Ocean, and South Asia, centred on India and abutting the Indian Ocean. A strategic system can be seen as a kind of geopolitical uh, set of power relationships where major changes in one part of the region affect what happens in the others. Uh, and this underscores, I think, the fact that the Indian Ocean has categorically replaced the Atlantic as the globe's busiest and most strategically significant trade corridor carrying two-thirds of global oil shipments and a third of the world's bulk cargo, and those proportions are set to grow. Now, the powerhouse economies of East Asia, China, but not only China, depend acutely on the oil that crosses the Indian Ocean from the Middle East and from Africa. And again, this dependence is set to deepen further. And even with all of its ambitions for overland pipeline projects, China can only offset a small proportion of that seaborne dependency and at great expense. So this reality of the Indo-Pacific region has been brought about by a whole confluence of economic and strategic factors. There's a long history involving plenty of maps, which, as I said, I like to bore my students with. So if you want to join them, please enrol. We can talk to you later uh, at the reception. But suffice to say for now that a good case can be made that there is a kind of submerged Indo-Pacific history to our region, going back to colonial and indeed to pre-colonial times, of economic, security, political and indeed cultural linkages between, between these seemingly disparate sub-regions, uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia, East Asia, the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. Uh, and in that picture, the Asia-Pacific uh, that was the orthodoxy of the late 20th century 
was a kind of useful but ephemeral moment, uh, and I'm always happy to debate that, that point. The key point for us this evening is that many countries have come to recognise some quite profound change from the 1990s onwards uh, across this maritime region, whatever they call of it. And the principal drivers of that change have been the rise of China and of India back to their traditional, if you like, pre-colonial status as great trading economies and powers that have become increasingly outward looking in their economic and military affairs and, crucially, reliant on those sea lanes for their energy and their security. However, this is a region that is too large for one power, or indeed two powers, to dominate. And it has some very distinct characteristics that will influence the strategy a country like Australia needs. You see, as well as a strategic system, the Indo-Pacific is a geo-economic system uh, where the changing economic interests and links among countries have given rise to changing power relationships. As in the previous colonial era, and I say previous colonial era because there are elements of a new colonial era that we'll have to watch for, uh, the flag uh, is following trade. In other words, state power, security is following commercial engagement. Indeed, the origins of the modern Indo-Pacific were economic, especially the very sudden dependence since the 1990s uh, of a rising China on imported oil across the Indian Ocean. Another characteristic is that this is primarily a maritime system where the interests and interactions of countries at sea tend to overshadow the continental, the land-based elements of their relations with one another. And crucially for us, this is a multipolar system where the fate of regional order or disorder will not be determined by one or even two powers, the United States and China, but also by the interests and choices of other powers which have their own agency. And so beyond these obvious features, there's a kind of interesting duality about the Indo-Pacific that makes it, uh, I guess, useful and in play for a country like Australia. Uh, a range of dualities, really. In other words, the reconciliation of contrasting aspects within the one idea. That sounds pretty abstract, but please bear with me. This is a region that is both inclusive and exclusive. The Indo-Pacific idea is about incorporating China's interests into the regional order where the rights of other nations are respected. But it is also about balancing against Chinese power when those rights are not. It is a region that is both economic and strategic, with economic origins but profoundly strategic consequences. It is a region where the boundaries are literally fluid, a maritime region, in every sense of the word. And this helps explain why different countries have different definitions of what it means. Is Africa in it or is it not? Well, in my view, it depends to what extent any particular issue of the day relates to the interests of the key Indo-Pacific powers, China, the United States, Japan and India. Still on this point of dualities, the Indo-Pacific matters as a maritime region, but of course it's the connection of the land to the sea that's important. Look at all that port infrastructure that's being built. In a sense, it's a complement to the idea of Eurasia, or more accurately, the idea of Eurasia is a complement to the Indo-Pacific, given that the sea will continue to outweigh the land for its ease of power projection and cheapness of commercial transportation. The Indo-Pacific is about Asia, but it's about more than Asia. It is regional and it's global. It's the main highway for commerce and energy between Africa, Asia, Europe, Oceania and the Americas. So in that sense, it's the most globally connected of regions. In fact, you could call it 
a global region. Now, that is a duality, not a contradiction, in my view. And this has a point. The point is that not all of the Indo-Pacific's stakeholders are resident powers. For instance, consider all of the countries which have deployed their navies in the Indian Ocean in response to Somali piracy over the past decade. Pretty much every major ocean-going navy has been there. And indeed, that moment, uh, I remember it well, late 2008, early 2009, marked really one of the historic turning points towards the Indo-Pacific, because that was the moment when China, after a 600-year break, returned its navy to the Indian Ocean, and it has not left. Which brings us back to China. Now, an Indo-Pacific strategy must be grounded in reflections on China. Uh, these are in part about China's external policies, the extension of China's own interests, capabilities, presence and influence into the Indian Ocean, because more than any other factor, this has driven this redefinition of the region. And I could list those factors, and perhaps in the Q&A we can do that, but let me, let me move on. Much of this is very evident in media coverage from day to day. It's economic, it's political, it's strategic, and it's more. Uh, but let's think also about the internal factors of China's imperatives in the Indo-Pacific region. And, of course, there are many things that link the internal and the external in this picture, not least the big signature initiative uh, of the Chinese leadership, the so-called Belt and Road Initiative. And, of course, the, uh, the road side of that, the Maritime Silk Road, is, in my view, the Indo-Pacific with Chinese characteristics. But it's the internal question that I think we need to consider as well because I think one of the fundamental strategic questions about how to respond to Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific is the answer to the question, is time on China's side? Now, this is illuminated by some interesting scholarship in recent years on the insecurities and the uncertainties around China's future. We, we're often overwhelmed by uh, the very confident, understandably confident picture of China as an economic and strategic power. But, of course, there's another side to the story. So I recommend the work of uh, scholars like Karl Mintzner, David Shambo uh, and others. Their work points to the risks of Chinese overstretch in the Indo-Pacific. Such analysis suggests that China's haste and confidence as a military and geoeconomic power in the region may, in fact, mask a kind of insecurity a desperation to lock in China's relative advantages in the world at this current high point of opportunity, a high point of opportunity brought about not least, I think, by the uncertainty with which other powers, such as the United States, have responded to China's rise. Now, this version of the future warns us of the rapidly ageing demographics, the debt bubbles, the limits of an unreformed economy, the worsening authoritarianism, the Communist Party's cannibalisation of legal institutions and civil society, and, of course, the potential coalitions of strategic pushback. So it's a different picture. I'm not saying it's a likely future, but it's a plausible future. Now, no sensible strategist and no sane human being wants the Chinese nation or the Chinese people to fail. But the one thing we know about the future is that it is not written. And so whether Chinese power grows or Chinese power eventually founders, there are good arguments for the region's many middle powers like Australia to coordinate their policies and their positions to moderate Chinese influence and discourage its risk-taking now. And that's where the nature of the Indo-Pacific comes in, because, as I said, it is a region too large, too diverse for hegemony. 
It is a region where, if you like, its sheer scale and its sheer diversity will dilute the power and influence of any uh, great power, any aspiring uh, power that, um, that rises. Now, without question, the, uh, the rather rude arrival of the Trump administration has come at precisely the time when Asia needed confidence in America's commitment to leadership, to liberal values and to the support of its allies. And many people are starting to pay attention to the terminology of the Indo-Pacific now, not least because last year the Trump administration formally began using it. Not sure if I want to thank them for that or not, but I think it's nonetheless a sign that the United States is turning, that the US system is recognising that if it has an Asian destiny, it's an Indo-Pacific destiny. Because the Indo-Pacific idea is not solely American, and I suspect it will be around longer than the Trump presidency. Sure, the Indo-Pacific idea has fed into the recent revival of the so-called quadrilateral security dialogue, or quad, among the United States, Japan, India and Australia, and I've been on record as advocating that as a good thing. But we shouldn't read too much into the Quad. This is not an alliance, and indeed its critics often identify uh, that as being the, I guess, the benchmark to which to hold the Quad's uh, importance. It's important for other reasons, including as a signal to China about what anxieties its power and influence are bringing about. The Indo-Pacific is larger and more inclusive than the Quad, and the Quad is one of many emerging small groups of countries seeking to work together to really seek new balance, new balance in the region. So, to reiterate uh, where I started, much is at stake in the names of regions and mental maps. They define what matters, they inform real decisions. And that's why, uh, for instance, China has been eager to get other countries to sign up uh, to its own label, the Belt and Road. We know what this is, we think we do. It describes China-centric economic and strategic connections across Eurasia, uh, the belt, and the sea lanes through Southeast Asia, the Indian Ocean, uh, towards Africa and the Middle East, the road, the Maritime Silk Road. Now, for what it's worth, I would emphasise that Australia has never and should never reject specific opportunities for economic partnership with China just because they come under the mantle of the Belt and Road. There's been a lot of myth-making around that subject, claiming that the government has somehow entirely rejected uh, the Belt and Road. In fact, I would argue that there is a quiet bipartisan consensus in this country that Australia should engage pragmatically on a project-by-project -project basis. Australia should cooperate on individual infrastructure projects with China where they make commercial sense, match our governance standards and are consistent with our security interests without having to endorse an entire Beijing-made worldview or label. The Indo-Pacific is a place of many belts and many roads. Its massive infrastructure needs are best met by cooperation that is inclusive, not exclusive. Cooperation that reconciles international standards, transparent governance, commercial imperatives, and the needs and the limitations of local economies and their capacity to take on debt. Whatever lexicon it deploys, whatever its ambitions on land in Eurasia, China has also categorically turned to the sea, both for commerce and military power. That is a natural and understandable thing. And therefore, China is actually facing up to the realities of being an Indo-Pacific power. Now, the complex 
geostrategic beauty of this region, which no Orwellian terminological distortion or doublethink can deny, is that it's too big for any one power to dominate. It's made for multipolarity and a diversity of partnerships, and this suits Australia. There are many nations with stakes and capabilities in this emerging competition, and sea powers like Australia will retain particular advantages, especially when they cooperate in coalitions. Now, I've said the Indo-Pacific is not inherently anti-China, and I stand by that. But why, then, has China become so uncomfortable, it seems, with the Indo-Pacific idea? Well, my sense is that, unfortunately and unnecessarily, China has sought to downplay perceptions that it must come to terms with the interests and the equal sovereignty of those many other powers in this big region. Thus, it has chosen to see the Indo-Pacific as code for that uncomfortable reality of multipolarity. But the term need not be politically loaded. Remember, it's an objective description of a maritime region in which China and others are rising. Go back to 2013, when Australia, under the Labor government of Julia Gillard, became the first country in the world formally to define the region as the Indo-Pacific. Interestingly, since then, the leaders of Japan, India, the United States, Indonesia and most recently France have explicitly advocated their own version of an Indo-Pacific view. Something's happening here. It's a trend which, in my view, disproves suggestions that this is some kind of useless abstraction or American plot. For instance, just two weeks ago, Indonesia's foreign minister released that country's new Indo-Pacific cooperation concept based on principles of being open, transparent and inclusive, promoting dialogue and upholding international law. This will reinforce ASEAN centrality and it will be a key agenda item at the next East Asia summit in November. Of course, it reinforces the point that the sea lanes of Southeast Asia, including the South China Sea, are absolutely at the core of the Indo-Pacific and will remain everybody's business. Rather than disempower ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the Indo-Pacific can offer it a new vehicle and new purpose. Three weeks ago, French President Macron called for nothing less than an Indo-Pacific axis of France, India and Australia as maritime powers able to share data and build capacity of smaller states in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Now, this is another of that web of security arrangements, new arrangements designed to hedge and warn against what President Macron rather deliciously called hegemonic temptations. Indian Prime Minister Modi has put a clearly Indo-Pacific stamp on his country's Act East policy. India's growing engagement with Japan, the United States, Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore and Australia is in that context. And the India-China relationship, one of the two big stories of strategic competition or cooperation, or at least coexistence, is going to play out across an Indo-Pacific canvas in the decades ahead. Japan's active strategic diplomacy in recent years, including its partnership with India, its establishment of a small military presence in Djibouti, is explicitly Indo-Pacific in character and reflects the fact that Japan, even more acutely than China, relies on those sea lanes of the Indian Ocean for its energy security. And so in 2016, Prime Minister Abe declared that Japan would pursue what he called a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy encompassing development, connectivity, investment and security all the way to Africa. This built on his earlier championing 
of a precursor to the Indo-Pacific idea, the so-called confluence of the two seas in a historic speech to the Indian Parliament in 2007. And other players, such as Singapore, Vietnam, even Britain, are considering their options for more creative strategic diplomacy in this many-playered region, whatever they choose to call it. But certainly the most active advocate of the Indo-Pacific idea has been Australia. Canberra has a unique role here, a middle player in the gathering Indo-Pacific game in multiple ways. This includes relative diplomatic influence, our unusual two-ocean geography, our proximity to and our advanced surveillance of the crucial sea lanes connecting the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. I mean, have no doubt Australia will have one of the best operating pictures of that environment. And Australia's status as a state that, despite being a US ally, is diversifying and deepening its economic, security and societal relations with multiple Asian powers. And that brings me, I guess, to the so what for our policymakers. There's been a lot of media coverage of some of these issues of late, the question of uh, what is Australia's policy in the region. And I guess I offer a few principles before I get to specifics. One is that our policymakers need steadiness and they need perspective. We need a policy that anticipates, recognises and responds to the great construction and the great disruption that is accompanying Chinese power. Because like others, Australia is seeking a narrative for engaging China that transcends both fear and greed. And ironically, many of the criticisms of policy at the moment are inspired by a perverse combination of both of those qualities. We need a policy that calls for confidence and patience, not panic every moment another country decides to adjust uh, its diplomatic dial. In the larger Indo-Pacific canvas, it's a willful misreading of events to claim that key powers are fundamentally realigning towards China. Recently, the leaders of India and Japan had useful dialogues with their Chinese counterparts, as they well should. These reset moments have been desired equally by each side. They moderated long phases of intense bilateral tension that ran the risk of war. So, of course, we wanted them moderated. And America's difficulties under Trump and the great unknowns of North Korea give everyone good reason to talk. But, as last year's Pew Research data reminds us, China's relations with its neighbours are mired in mistrust at a basic societal level. Now, not so long ago, there was a time when China would alienate multiple neighbours at once, rather recklessly. In 2014, its relations with India, Japan, Vietnam and the Philippines were all not so good at the same time. Right now, and to its credit, China is playing a much smoother, smarter diplomatic game. It's trying to generate the impression that Australia, for example, is an isolated country, stubbornly swimming against the tide. Hence, diplomatic discomfort and hints of economic pressure to follow. The fact is that our economy is more capable of withstanding that pressure than some in our public debate would like us to imagine. But that is another conversation. The fact is this is not a full-blown crisis and nor need it be. Over recent years, from Vietnam to Singapore, South Korea to Japan to India, much of the region has endured much worse in its relations with China, with patience, not panic, with resilience, with realism and solidarity. And so to the elements, uh, I guess, of a sustainable Indo-Pacific strategy for Australia. Where to now? 
Well, some of these elements were sketched in the foreign policy white paper last November, which I think was a, uh, a very solid start, and in the defence white paper of 2016, and the evolving debate about the China relationship. I think what's striking about the foreign policy white paper is that it read in many ways like a comprehensive national security strategy. It placed a great emphasis on building resilience and capacity at home. Uh, this is not just about defence, it's not just about diplomacy as traditionally conceived. An Australian Indo-Pacific strategy will involve foreign policy and soft power, defence and national security. For example, uh, as Australia modernises its navy, we will need world-class cyber security to protect that technology. Uh, we'll need defence modernisation that gets perhaps a little more creative uh, than the white paper of a few years ago. For example, uh, greater investment in autonomous and unmanned systems to uh, protect our extensive uh, Indian Ocean geography. Australia needs a real debate about energy security as an element of our Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, there's an extraordinary lack of awareness and extraordinary complacency in our political class about the paucity of Australia's own energy stocks and Australia's vulnerability to crisis, whether environmental or whether deliberately engineered uh, in a conflict between states. There's a new need for a focus on aid and development as instruments not only of humanitarian good, but of national policy, of strategic policy in the South Pacific and elsewhere. And I guess if there's one blessing from the uh, emerging concerns and debate about the contest for influence in the South Pacific is that this could well redouble investment in aid and development as, among other things, uh, a national security issue. There's a need in Australia to, in my view, uh, bring together our policies for engaging with the South Pacific, with the Indian Ocean and with Southeast Asia. These may have been differentiated sub-regions in the past, but the challenges we face in these regions, whether to do with state power or whether to do with environmental and resource constraints, are strikingly and disturbingly similar. And of course, there's a need to really double down on a wide range of strategic partnerships, not only with the United States. When it comes to the economic side of the ledger, the so-called new geoeconomics of investment and infrastructure in the region, Australia should not compete with China in terms of scale. Uh, we should play to our strengths. We should play to standards, to education, not offering alternatives to Chinese investment and money, but building the institutions in smaller countries that will make their states more attuned to risk, uh, more resilient and more attuned to opportunity more informed in the way that they choose to utilise others' apparent largesse. Australia should focus on its strengths of capacity building in the maritime domain, the South Pacific and elsewhere. And finally, we should work on a domestic narrative. I think one of the, uh, the striking challenges in this country, and having worked in this town now for three years after eight years in Sydney, I'm still quite conscious of it, is the extraordinary gulf between the policy debate in Canberra and the wider public debate uh, in the general community, in the business community and in multicultural Australia. Uh, that is not good enough if we're going to have an effective strategy as a middle power in a contested region. So there is a need for a new narrative and a need for our political class to get serious about that narrative. So all of this will require sustaining and accentuating what, to a considerable degree, I think as a nation, we have come to cherish. And I'll end on that line, which is an independent foreign policy. Thank you.
category, I'm sure that there are many, many questions. So uh, let's get into it. Who'd like to start at the back as you, sir? Thanks. Rory, thank you very much for a fascinating presentation. Uh, as you were describing the characteristics of the Indo-Pacific, I couldn't help but think about what historical precedents might exist for similar sorts of regions that you described. And my mind couldn't help but turn to Europe in the 1890s. It was a region that was also laced with economic interconnections, you know, complex alliances. It was also a global region, and it was also a region that was too large for hegemony. I wonder what you might think about how those characteristics uh, might play towards conflict rather than cooperation. Yeah, I know, I know where you're trying to take me there, Will. Um, <laughs> look, I won't take the bait. I mean, I think, look, I, I, I do think uh, that we've all had uh, a fascinating history education in recent years when we see the statistics that remind us that, in fact, um, proportionately globalisation, or at least the connectedness of major economies, uh, was larger in scale uh, in the decade before the First World War than at any time since. In other words, it is not an insurance policy against interstate conflict. So I guess uh, there's an obvious answer there. I think there are, you know, all sorts of of, uh, specific and maybe theological differences we could have about Europe then um, and the Indo-Pacific now. I think uh, one of the key points to bear in mind is that, the, um, is that there are so many stakeholders in this region and that, moreover, um, I guess there are, there are a set of actual risk-averse incentives. I mean, if you look at uh, China's behaviour in the region, despite all of the things I've pointed out, concerns about military modernisation, concerns about uh, China's, if you like, expansive attitude to the region, uh, I think like every other major power in the region, China has no desire to cross thresholds to war. Uh, it's actually done remarkably well in minimising risk. I'm not sure that the Chinese Navy in fighting Somali pirates has actually ever shot anyone. So in that sense, um, I think we have a healthier strategic environment than then. The flip side of that is that um, there's a greater emphasis on coercion and on giving the impression that countries are willing to take risks and to inflict pain on others. Um, so I think, in a sense, we have a little bit more latitude than we did in pre-1914 Europe uh, to, uh, to push back. Hello, uh, Professor Medcalf. Thanks for your talk. Look, I probably wasn't one of those people like your students who'd have benefited from a map. And uh, when you're sort of getting a feel for the ambition of your strategy, what are your boundaries of the Indo-Pacific? You've talked about maybe Africa. You've talked about it as perhaps a chessboard where great powers play. But how far east and west and north and south do you extend it? I mean, if I was thinking in geographic terms, I'd say the Babel Mandeb, the Cape of Good Hope, Cape Horn and the Bering Straits would be my boundaries. Are your boundaries as extensive as that? So I'll, I will answer you, but firstly with a one-word answer, which is fluid. Um, <laughs> but... Let's take a couple more questions and I'll try and integrate an answer into those. Thank you very much for tonight. Um, so in the 2017 foreign policy white paper, there was a graph that showed that China's <coughs> excuse me, economy was going to grow to $42 trillion, which was twice as much as the US, which was estimated at $24 trillion by 2013 from estimates by the Treasury. And this to me sort of revealed, although that greater relations with China is not advocated in rhetoric, the foreign policy establishment chose to show a graph to perhaps, which perhaps reveals a sense of inevitability. And I think in one of your policy papers, you mentioned that 
um, power is as much about perception as it is reality. So how vulnerable is Australia, in fact, to geoeconomic attempts of influence by China? Well, there are many other, in, there are many other, I guess, consequences you could put to that data, but I'll come back to that one. All right, maps, leverage, let's take one more, yeah. Thank you, Professor. Yeah. Um, just a question in relation to the overall picture we've been given tonight, in relation to the recently announced Australia's space policy, would this have a, a very interesting bearing on all of the um, machinations of, of consideration? Thank you. Wow, that's a big one. Okay. Let's take one more and then I've got four and I'll give you an omnibus answer. I can go up to five if you want. Okay. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Uh, I heard a while ago that Indonesia's economy is going to be greater than Australia's in 10, 15 years or so. Well, maybe. But what are the consequences for the relationships among the big powers for places like Indonesia who are emerging? That's surely going to tip the balance one way or the other. Yep. OK, one more, then we'll have five. OK, yep. With respect to the, to, uh, the policy for our strategy, would it be better if we start increasing our population to form like what they call a big Australia, or should we follow the other, the other side where, where we reduce our immigration? There's been a lot of debate on that and how, on what sort of population we should have. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, it's as wide as the Indo-Pacific. Population, Indonesia, space, economic leverage and maps. Okay, great. I'm going to work backwards. I'll start with population. Um, and I won't just talk about Australia. I mean, I think, uh, you know, look, there are many ways we could approach these issues. I mean, there are good and bad things about population size, regardless of the all this power politics stuff that I know, um, you know, for a few of us isn't our normal... Um, uh, our normal intellectual fare. But um, going to Australia, I think that uh, even if Australia were to have a doubled or tripled or you know, quadrupled population, uh, it's only going to make a relative difference in this, uh, in this extraordinary region. I think it's not just about numbers, it's about quality and it's about cohesion. And I think one of the great challenges we have, and if you read the fantastic research uh, by George Megalogenis on this recently, is really, uh, I guess, bringing together the diversity of multicultural Australia in a way that supports some kind of uh, coherent external orientation for Australia. We've never had to make foreign or defence or security policy before with, I guess, such a diverse range of backgrounds in our national population. Of course it can be done, um, but I am struck, as I said, often by the mismatch between the conversation in this town um, and the conversation you hear uh, in somewhere like Melbourne or Sydney. So I think, yes, population scale uh, is important, and if that can be done, 
with environmental constraints and all of the other constraints, I think, well and good. Um, I think that's a reasonable ambition. I think a really important ratio of uh, younger to older Australians is absolutely vital. And I think one of the interesting statistics uh, that goes to the future of, for example, the Chinese economy, uh, and which is why I, I genuinely think we've got to look at this time window theory of China's rise, uh, is the demographic cliff that China is heading for. This is the first great power in history, even now, to have a military comprised almost entirely of only children. Um, we have no idea what that means for the way China would behave in an international conflict or crisis. This will be a country that gets old before it gets rich um, and that will have a problem uh, dwarfing even that of Japan or South Korea or Western Europe when it comes to looking after its older generation in years to come. Uh, the United States, meanwhile, for all of its obvious problems is going to maintain uh, a much more balanced ratio of younger to older uh, citizens as the years go on. So this is a very, very long game. Um, and on Indonesia, which goes to population, I guess, um, I think that this again reinforces that point about the multipolarity of the region. I mean, I've actually, uh, with colleagues, played some quite uh, creative scenario exercises of the future of the region, where if, in if Indonesia uh, gets its act together in diplomatic leadership, which it's often struggled to do, in 10 to 20 years, it could be a major power in the region. Uh, and frankly, that's a good thing for Australia. I think Australia is long past the days where it saw Indonesia as a problem. A weak Indonesia is a problem for Australia, not a strong Indonesia. Um, because, again, I think Indonesia will help uh, integrate China into a region where there is mutual respect among the different national interests and the different cultures of the region. Um, Australia has a long way to go in space, um, but it's nice to get started. Um, I think it's about time Australia stopped being essentially uh, the real estate for other countries' space programs. Um, and with various partners, but I mean, it's not just the United States, but thinking, for example, about India, France, a number of others, um, Australia could have some really interesting collaborations in space, including in, uh, in, in uh, satellite technology, uh, in remote sensing and so on. Uh, Australia relies very heavily on the United States in that domain, and that is a relationship that we, will, that we cherish, but obviously want to uh, look for ways to diversify. Um, the question of economic leverage um, is one way to interpret that issue about the scale of the Chinese economy, um, bearing in mind, of course, that that data is, is PPP, not exchange rate based. Um, so uh, I guess it, there, are, there are pros and cons to me measuring it that way. But um, I think that, uh, look, the basic statistic I would give you is this. I mean, no country wants to be subject to economic leverage and pressure, I should add, um, and uh, it's not, in my view, in China's interest to apply seriously heavy economic pressure and leverage on Australia over the long run, because these are often typically a, a one-use weapon. You do it once, um, you send your signal, uh, you spook a whole lot of other countries into diversifying their economic relationships as quickly as they can. Um, Japan diversified its uh, rare earths uh, imports, for example, from China as soon as that, that tap was turned off. Uh, so, look, of course, it's, a, it's an area of concern, but interestingly, uh, the two areas where Australia is most vulnerable, uh, tourism and education, Education, uh, are also areas where the pain is going to be more political than, I guess, profoundly economic. We don't want to go there, obviously, uh, but I think uh, that we're still some distance, some distance from that. And I think one of the... Going to my point about parochialism, one of the questions for Australia or any other country that finds itself subject to economic pressure from any country 
Bear in mind, if you succumb the first time, you're going to be more vulnerable to it uh, again in, uh, in, in the future. Um, finally, going to questions about um, scale and maps and the size of the Indo-Pacific. I mean, I was quite serious when I said it's a fluid, it's a fluid region. Um, I don't think it makes sense to draw some line in the water, you know, somewhere between um, Madagascar and the coast of Africa and say, that's it. That's the boundary of the Indo-Pacific. The Americans do that with their... Pacific Command, but that's, um, you know, that's not, not realistic. I think it's about where the interests of great powers are engaged. And in that case, uh, to the extent that Australia can have so, uh, can, can make some difference uh, in terms of its great power relationships elsewhere in the region, then yes, uh, we have a role to play. Interestingly, even those who are critics of the Indo-Pacific idea and say, hey, it's just too big a region for Australia to engage in, would somehow think we can make a bigger difference on the Korean Peninsula, part of the Asia-Pacific, than in the Indian Ocean right next door. So I think it's really a matter of case-by-case -case decisions about where we can exert influence and leverage, and I would say that the focus of it will continue to be Southeast Asia, which, which if anything, is closer to the core of the Indo-Pacific than to the old um, Asia-Pacific idea. Hi. Um, yeah, I just wanted to know if you can expand on your final point there about Australia having an uh, independent foreign policy in that respect, and just wanted to see whether you were trying to make reference to any country that Australia is... Go on, following. you can say it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you say it. Yeah, look, I mean... We'll take one more. I mean, that, I could go on for hours on that one, so yeah. what I, yeah. Hello. Um, I'm a postgraduate student from the Sorry, uh, Department up. of International Relations. Yes. So you, are, um, you have been mentioning about the countries in uh, the Indian Ocean. This, uh, my question is particularly concerned on the small island states, small states, if I um, put it, uh, in the Indian Ocean, specifically countries like uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, we can see in the recent development that Sri Lanka has been influenced mm. uh, very largely by the new initiative of OBOR. And uh, if you look at uh, the historical perspective as well, Sri Lanka has been, had been in the ancient Silk Route. So in this particular context, uh, Australia as a middle power, uh, how would you think that Australia should engage with countries like uh, Sri Lanka because the, the Sri Lanka itself had been strategically positioned in the Indian Ocean. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. So independent foreign policy in Sri Lanka. Um, okay, look. So, you know, the, the term independent foreign policy has become, has often been very popular in the Australian um, public discourse, if you like, as code for uh, let's, stop, uh, let's stop doing much with America. Um, and I think uh, given that the... You know, look, let's put Donald Trump aside for a moment, if you possibly can. But think about the fact that the alliance with the United States, whether you like it or not, was an independent Australian foreign policy choice to make in the first place. In a sense, uh, it should be Australia's sovereign decision whether or not we have an alliance with the United States. I think that one of the um, unfortunate uh, codes, and I read this in Global Times today, among other publications, one of the other unfortunate uses of that term is that it's now used consistently uh, not only by those that push Chinese soft power in China, but also those in Australia who seem to be um, somewhat sympathetic to that view, it's used as code to say we should listen to China but not the United States. And I think that independent foreign policy is not about swapping one great power influence 
for another. Um, is there more Australia could do to assert itself in the relationship with the United States? Absolutely. And I think that Donald Trump has given us a wonderful reason to be more assertive as an ally. Um, one of the great counterfactuals of history is you know, if Australia uh, could, say, could have said no to one of the wars that we fought alongside the United States, which one would it be? Perhaps if we hadn't been in Iraq in 2003, that might have made it a bit easier to assert this point that the alliance is an Australian independent foreign policy decision. But I certainly, I certainly stand by that. On Sri Lanka, I think that um, uh, it's look, it's a, it's a laboratory. I mean, it's a great country, but it's it's a wonderful country uh, that's been through a lot. But it's also a laboratory for how this great power relations will play out in the region. And I think. Uh, if I were to look at places where Australia could be more engaged, where as a middle power with, I think, you know, a degree of credibility and some pretty strong institutions, we could make a difference, I would say Sri Lanka. Um, we could work with others in Sri Lanka and other Indian Ocean states, partly because some of them don't particularly trust India all that much. And therefore, I think, are somewhat short-sightedly turning to China as their local counterweight to India. Um, I think a country like Australia could make quite a difference. And if I were advising the government of Sri Lanka, I would say to you know, be quite um, ruthless and pragmatic in playing all these great powers off against one another. Get your development assistance out of, um, out of uh, China. Uh, get the Japanese to help you build a coast guard. Get the Australians to give you data to uh, catch illegal, uh, illegal fishing. You know, work that, but, don't, but, but be absolutely mindful of the risk to your sovereignty, and I think uh, there are real risks to Sri Lanka's sovereignty uh, at the moment. Thank you. So we just heard Rory Medcalf's talk on the Indo-Pacific just then, and now I am here with two leading academics from the Australian National University to explain a little bit more about the Indo-Pacific. So I am here with David Brewster from the National Security College. Hello, David. Hi. And with Denise Fisher, a Europa Visiting Fellow from the Centre for European Studies. Hi, Denise. Hi, Maya. Just to start off, for those who decided to skip the Rory Medcalf speech, his little definition about the Indo-Pacific was the combining of Indian and Pacific Oceans, and it was an integration of East Asia and South Asia. So just quickly... Do you agree with this definition or what is your definition of the Indo-Pacific? Because everyone has very different views on this. Yes, look, I think that's broadly right. The, uh, the Indo-Pacific is a strategic concept which reflects the convergence of the strategic dynamics of the Pacific Ocean with the Indian Ocean. And that's primarily driven by growing interactions between East Asia and South Asia, primarily between China and India, but involving a number of other countries in the economic space, the political space, and uh, the strategic and military space. And that is reflected m largely in the maritime realm more than in uh, uh, the, 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 the land. And so we have this, this, this concept which is basically... Uh, both a functional and geographic concept. It's a functional concept to the extent that it talks about these growing economic and strategic interactions, but between two previously separate geographic spaces and therefore bringing these two geographic spaces together. 
Denise? Well, I know that uh, Rory talked about it being a fluid, very fluid concept, but I I wonder if that's good enough, really. Um, I think anybody looking at Indo-Pacific knows that a big element of it is China. Uh, And when you look at Australia's definition, uh, particularly in the most recent Defence White Paper 2017, um, the idea of what we think uh, the Indo-Pacific should encompass is actually quite blurry. Uh, The best I can make out is that it's India plus most of the Asia-Pacific. In our White Paper, we talk about China, obviously we talk about Japan, the US, Indonesia, ROK, at one point even Vietnam. Mm. So it doesn't seem to me that we're clear uh, in this. And when you look at our strategy for furthering it, the situation becomes even less clear because we talk about engaging major democracies in bilateral and small groups. Uh, So where does that leave for example, China. Uh, So I think there are some questions about this and I really don't think it's good enough that we just accept a a fluid definition of all of this. And I guess because it is a maritime region, Mm. predominantly um, the boundaries are fluid in the fact that it is water. It is a water boundary. Would you think that... Sorry, can I just jump in? I I mean, I would fundamentally disagree with with Denise's comments. I think it is an evolving concept And because it's based on some functional changes, to try and draw bright bright boundaries in geographic terms around it is not terribly helpful, particularly because Australia is going to have very different ideas about its geographic extent compared with, say, Japan or compared with India. And that's natural and normal. And to try and corral everyone into some sort of strict geographic definition, I don't think is terribly helpful because it's a, at the base, it's a functional concept. So uh, naturally, countries are going to see it in somewhat different terms, including China. Yeah, well, um, I guess uh, I would say that uh, what I would come back to the idea of having a very clear idea of what our interests are and identifying those partners who most share those interests. And I come back to your point about maritime, basically a maritime region. Well, again, I think that's cutting the concept a little bit short in that um, it's really, you know, foreign policy now is much more complex than it used to be. Uh, Maritime is is one one aspect of the the Indo-Pacific, but there are a whole range of other uh, things beyond uh, the traditional security of trade respective pillars of foreign policy that we need to look at. And there are a whole range of governments. And it's not necessarily bound by geography, David, don't you think? I mean, there are countries like France who've recently come in to claim a shared strategic perspective on the basis of the smattering of possessions that it has in the Indian Ocean way over near off the coast of Africa and in the Pacific. So I think we do need to have a better concept, a better, clearer idea ourselves of what we're including. And if, as it seems to be from the white paper that it's India plus uh, mm. South, that's fine that's but let's not beat it let's say that that's what it is well, well, um, that's clearly uh, what the Australian official position is that it is essentially more or less the Asia Pacific plus India and that's that's a bureaucratic decision to define it in that way to ensure that Australian policy making is relatively focused and not too diffuse. 
But certainly others can, and certainly countries like Japan and India give it a broader definition and they would, for example, follow the maritime trading routes all, all, all the way across to the east coast of Africa and that's fine mm-hmm. as well. Uh, you know, we don't need to, certainly for our own purposes, Australia has to have a clear idea and I think we do. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, we shouldn't be feel the need to impose our view of the world on other countries. Other countries will naturally have somewhat different perspectives, and I, I see that as, as absolutely fine. Yeah, so aside from, I guess, the difficulties of defining the Indo-Pacific as itself, what are the challenges of, you know, incorporating the Indo-Pacific into strategy for middle powers like Australia, Japan, Indonesia, and for the great powers such as China and India and the US? Well, look, um, any new concept is going to, uh, which changes the way we look at the world, which is what the Indo-Pacific concept does, is going to ruffle some feathers because previously set ideas or set mental categories are changed and then suddenly it, it forces both large powers and, and middle powers to look at the world somewhat differently. Yeah, you've got to redraw that map in yeah, your mind. Yeah, I mean, I see the, uh, the, the Indo-Pacific concept as being very favourable to many middle powers, such as, uh, or depending on how you define middle powers, but such as Australia, Japan, uh, Indonesia and India, depending on how you define India, because it, it links them into a, a bigger region and I think gives them a potentially a greater say uh, in, in the region. Countries like China and even the US, are, I think, are going to be more hesitant. And we've seen, actually, the United States of any of the uh, so-called Western countries or Western-oriented countries involved in this. The United States has actually been fairly hesitant about, uh, about the concept, and that reflects... I think the Washington dichotomy between East Asia and the Middle East there's a in 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 American foreign policy circles which is being challenged by this concept. Yeah, well, you know, I see that clearly it's a it's a challenge for a middle-sized country, but I think what we need to do is look at where we've been extremely successful in uh, defining a strategic leadership regional role. And I think, for example, to uh, post-war structures and architectures in the South Pacific, which were highly successful and continue to this day, the SPC, the Pacific Island Forum, the range of crop technical bodies. Secondly, the the enunciation, articulation and winning of support for the APEC concept based on a very clear idea of what we wanted, defining which countries we were going to target, going and painstaking diplomacy to bring them on board, and the East Asia Summit, uh, which uh, similarly is highly successful and relevant today. And in these two Asian examples, uh, we note that we included the big power, the big power in the room, and that was China. Mm. So now I see this as a logical extension of successful Australian diplomacy. Uh, and in, in, in articulating this Indo-Pacific concept, I think we do need to, to look at, at the successes of where we have achieved regional leadership, uh, where others now want in on it. And I think India does want in on those Asia-Pacific concepts, and I think France does too. So uh, there's no uh, problem for us, I think, in acknowledging that we are just a middle-sized power, knowing the limits to that, but also knowing what we have achieved in the past and what we can contribute to achieving in a concrete way from now, from 
going forward. Uh, so I, I do think that uh, we have something to contribute, uh, but that we do need to be more focused. Yeah, so I guess just on that about Australia, we had a listener question from Digby Howis, which was, what should Australia's role be in the Indo-Pacific? Well, we've, we've articulated it. We articulated the policy very early in 2013. And we've now seen uh, not only certainly India being very forthcoming, uh, we've seen uh, President Jokowi in Indonesia articulating support for an ASEAN-centric concept of Indo-Pacific. We've seen the American president in December coming on board uh, in his foreign policy paper, so his strategic security paper. So uh, I think these are signs that it's not something that, that we are alone thinking about and that we can develop our idea, as we did with these other examples in the region, develop our idea of who we think should be involved and court those those the participation by those countries and then if others want in just as in those other organizations other people did want in then remain open but I think this is all based on an understanding that the best deal for us especially when the big big powers are involved is to concentrate on uh, fairness rules-based and inclusiveness and this is where I have a problem with the way the Indo-Pacific has been defined so far in in the sense that there seem to be groupings that exclude one of the major players. Mm. So can we not be a bit fresher about, for example, looking at some common interests where we might have, for example, China has put forward this Belt and Road policy. Surely there are some elements that may overlap with what some of the participants in the Indo-Pacific might want. Well, is China's Belt and Road um, initiative just its way of ignoring the Indo-Pacific or pushing for its own terminology? Look, we have to be really careful about not conflating things. China is a central player of the Indo-Pacific. It's, you know, if you had to name one player that the Indo-Pacific was about, it's China. So to suggest that China is excluded from the Indo-Pacific is sort of almost nonsensical. It's like saying, well, Germany is not part of Europe. The Indo-Pacific is is largely um, about China and what China's doing in the region. So don't conflate that concept of what is in the Indo-Pacific with uh, what countries are doing about the Indo-Pacific and about the strategic changing strategic dynamics in the Indo-Pacific. The BRI is the Indo-Pacific with Chinese characteristics. It is China's play in the Indo-Pacific. Other countries will have other responses to the Indo-Pacific, one of them being the Quad. So don't conflate the Quad with the Indo-Pacific. The Quad is a response to to the strategic dynamics which the Indo-Pacific is about. Yes, uh, obviously the Quad does not include China because the Quad is, when it comes down to it, an exercise in balancing China in one way or or another. But that, uh, I think, Denise is is, is absolutely correct in that we need to find better ways of engaging with China. China's China's response to the Indo-Pacific, the BRI, the the Belt and Road Initiative, in, in, in a positive way. And that means working, you know, to the extent possible, working with China in terms of its BRI projects and hopefully moulding 
those projects so they are more transparent than they have been in the past. They're more economically feasible for the host countries and those infrastructure projects are operating on a non-exclusive basis. Now, we've seen recently uh, Japan and China, despite the tensions between those two countries, actually talking a lot more about cooperating with their infrastructure projects. By the way, Japan is the other big player. It has a fund of some $110 billion for infrastructure projects. And so in, in, in many ways, Japan is actually has more projects in this Indo-Pacific belt than China does. And to the extent those two countries can work together, hopefully in pursuit of common um, uh, uh, common objectives, then, then that would be great. So despite the Indo-Pacific being a new concept and I guess, you know, a blank slate, it's not really a blank canvas. Everyone will still bring all of their histories and all of their conflicts and everything from the Asia-Pacific into the Indo-Pacific. So do you think that the future of the region will be one of cooperation or one of competition? Look, competition exists because because we're talking about power here and in any region we're going to have competition. I don't think there's a question that there will be competition. There has been from time immemorial. It's what Australia uh, can uh, do to maximise cooperation and maximise the kind of rules-based fair-go system that serves our interests. And uh, in this new a broader paradigm of the Indo-Pacific. Um, that's what we need to do. Uh, and we've done it, as in the past, with selective partners. And so I think um, I would I would look at, at those partners, but I think we have to understand where the viewpoints, as, as David said, of those partners with their interests actually converge and diverge from our own. And here, the other most commonly discussed example is that of the US. There's constant exhortions, exhortations in the media. That being, you know, we have to go along with everything the US says. Uh, but it's the same with China, with India, and with France, this new player that's identified its wish to come in. But we shouldn't um, disguise there's no problem with having different interests. There will be overlapping interests, but there will be points of departure. Uh, as far as China is concerned, I once again come back to the successes of Australia in diplomacy here. We were one of the first countries to have a long strategy in developing relations with China. We got in on the ground floor, largely because of the chopping off of our markets from the common market when Europe was formed. Uh, but nonetheless, we were there and we've built up a situation where we are now its seventh largest trading partner. Now, I say that again very deliberately because um, India is its 13th largest trading partner. France is its 20th. Our trade uh, with China is double that of France's with China. So whatever these uh, partners that we are dealing with uh, would like to get out of the relationship, we mustn't forget that our interest in history is different. India's relationship with China has historically been hostile. Uh, so uh, we need, uh, in dealing with India, in developing a common strategy perhaps with our bilateral talks, our foreign minister said we want to deal bilaterally and in small groups, um, but we need to be very clear-headed about what our interests are as opposed to those of our respective partners. Oh, look, I, I endorse, um, I, I think, um, much of what um, Denise said. I, I think, look, the Quad, uh, and I'll focus on, on on the Quad here, I think it's an interesting animal, and I think uh, some analysts have been far too quick to try and brand it as 
a de facto alliance and then start to pick holes. Well, you, this country did this and this country said that, so therefore it's all falling apart. I think that's a, 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 a real misconception and not a helpful way to look at it. Certainly the four quad countries have shared interests which bring them together on particular subjects, but I think they also make clear to each other that, that they have differing perspectives. And that's fine. Um, I don't think, um, certainly uh, among those involved, I don't think anyone has any, any real problem with that. India obviously borders China, has a long-standing border dispute with China, and will have very different perspectives and a very different relationship to China, uh, as does Australia. And I think um, that's broadly accepted by, uh, by those involved. But I think um, Denise is, is absolutely correct in saying that Australia has to be very clear in understanding where our interests are in all of this and how best to pursue it. Um, because, you know, we need to, obviously, uh, Australia, like any country, wants the best of both worlds. And I just want to change tack a little bit and talk about sort of the peripheral edges of the Indo-Pacific. So where does, I guess, where does Africa come into this and where does the Pacific Islands come into this concept? Well, here again, I think we can only go on what our official government position and perspective as stated is, and as far as I can read it, it's India plus what we know of as Asia Pacific. So that's the South Pacific, the, the literal countries of the Pacific Ocean. But I'm not convinced it yet. It may well be, but it hasn't been articulated that it may be the Middle Eastern and African literal states. I, we have to, heard a lot of talk about South Asia. We don't hear so much about about Sri Lanka. We don't hear much about Pakistan and uh, Bangladesh. Uh, and look, at, we know too that India has very difficult relationships with all of those mm. countries. So I, that's, I keep coming back to the fact that we need to be clearer in our articulation uh, of what it actually means for us. I've seen a lot of material coming out of India, which is quite clear that they include all of the literal states, mm. the rim countries of the Indian Ocean, but I don't think we're there, we're there yet at all. I think that's exactly right. But it's, I think you're ex, don't ex, not, to, to say we're not there yet is not the way to, to uh, looking at it. We're, we're not there because we're not there. And we, we're in a different place in the world. We look at the world differently. When you're looking at an, the Indo-Pacific, a functional concept, it is not the, it is not what it is absolutely not is somehow aggregating the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. That would be a foolish and completely impractical and useless. It's just too big, isn't it's it? It's too big. Yeah. There is, you know, Chile and Mozambique. I don't think so. Mm. And yet, so, this is what Mr. Macron asked us to do, isn't it? When he came to Australia and talked about the shared strategic perspective well, that we have with France, France on the basis of its territories France in the Pacific, France will have a different view, and yeah. that's absolutely yeah. fine. I don't feel he can say what he wants. I don't feel no, no, whether it's good or bad or otherwise. And of course, they will be guided by their own colonial territorial interests in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, which is one of the big factors why they're, uh, one of several factors why they're sort of showing significant interest and uh, absolutely. So your understanding of our position is India plus the Asia Pacific? No, because ah. that would, in if you include Chile, a member of APEC, 
then oh, that makes mm-hmm. no sense at all. It's a functional concept built around the Asian rim, the Australian position. Only part of the Asia-Pacific, in your opinion. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that the Asia-Pacific is a much, it was, via the APEC grouping, was expanded to include Canada and uh, the United States, obviously, but Chile, Peru. That, that but wouldn't that be wouldn't that be for Australia cutting off the privileged position that we have in our Asia Pacific uh, organisations? Not, not we, we have a privileged link with China, for example. This is, through this all is of not these an alternative. This well, is I guess not an alternative. Our, our very discussion doesn't it is revealing that there is doubt about. No, no, it's, this is no. You don't have one or another. I think it's you evolving. don't say. You, it's absolutely evolving, but you know, regions. People have multiple concepts of regions, overlapping concepts. We so then, think, how does this work? If everyone has a different understanding of what the region absolute, is, how do we make that's it a reality? Absolutely fine. You know, we have a concept. We, we. I mean, regions are socially constructed. They are intentionally constructed for particular political, military, economic purposes. Now, the concept of the Asia-Pacific was a socially constructed concept uh, going back to the 1970s and 1980s in which I Australia... I disagree. I think it's based strongly on economics. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I guess this comes Pre- back, to, back so, to our discussion of the strategic... How do you put this strategy into place... And uh, I would come back to the changing definition of foreign policy. I think in the good old days, we could talk comfortably about the two pillars of foreign policy, defence and trade. Well, now I think we have evolved very into, we've got a situation where foreign policy is more complex, where uh, I know Gareth Evans was one of the first to articulate for Australia the idea of soft power and um, uh, governance and other issues that go beyond either of these two, strictly speaking. But even within defence, for example, we no longer talk about defence, we need to talk about security policy. This encompasses all sorts of things like cyber security, um, uh, the trans transnational issues of terrorism and even climate change. And on the economic side, economic development is no longer just a matter of trade. It's a matter of governance issues. It's a matter of environmental sustainability. So we are living in a much more complex world. Uh, And so I don't think that looking at the Indo-Pacific, you know, we've talked a lot about whether it's maritime or not. Uh, There are broader dimensions. And I think, especially if we're talking about India plus Asia-Pacific, then we need to be sure that when we're talking to India, we talk not just about naval power and influence, strategic power and influence in that sense, but all these other elements as well. What does it mean for for, um, our economic development? What does it mean for um, our security cooperation in the broader sense? And Mm. what does it mean for soft power? And I think here we come to something which is very much in the news in the last couple of Mm. days, you know, China exerting soft power. Um, Why are we surprised by that? We've identified soft power as one of the key tools of foreign policy. Uh, We don't use it perhaps as skillfully and we haven't been using as long as many other countries have. The French are past masters at using cultural diplomacy. The Indians are getting very good at soft Mm. power as well. Yes. So so how do we deal with that? The relationship with with India is, you know, clearly Australia has made a lot of efforts to emphasise the economic as much as possible without a lot of success. And there is a sort of a broad uh, assumption that somehow India is the new China. India is not the new China. Let's be clear about that. Our economic relationship with India will improve over time, hopefully. 
But I think the what we've seen over the last 10 years, and I think what will continue for some time, is the relationship places much more focus on defence and security than economics. And that's just the way it is. And, you know, we uh, that will continue to be the case. So do we see the Indo-Pacific idea, as opposed from the Asia-Pacific idea, as being primarily defence and military? Is that what you're saying? Well, hang on, let's go back to Asia-Pacific. Asia-Pacific was a socially constructed concept in the 70s and 80s, driven by economics and security. Mm-hmm. And it was really a way of keeping, primarily keeping the United States economically and, and militarily engaged in, in, in our part of the world. Mm. That's, that's fine. Um, now, the Indo-Pacific region itself is primarily, these changes that we're seeing is primarily economically driven by China's economic engagement in Indian Ocean, India's economic engagement in the Pacific. And following that comes military and defence issues. Now, that's fine. So it's, a, it's, it's driven by these economic and strategic uh, dynamics. The Australia's bilateral relationship with India, we would like it to be driven by both economic and, and military factors. But, uh, you know, I don't think India is really quite there yet. And that's why the defence and security relationship uh, has been advanced, you know, uh, is, mu- is a lot more mature, if you like, than the economic relationship in that bilateral relationship. So as these concepts are, I agree, they are socially constructed. So how long do you think it will take for the Indo-Pacific to become a reality in everyone's minds compared to the Asia-Pacific? Well, look, I think that these things can happen very quickly. Um, you know, no one heard of the South Southeast Asia until 1943. The term did not exist. And yet now it's, it seems to us to be always to have been there an obvious thing. Similarly with Asia Pacific, no one, you know, it was not a concept really until the 1970s and 1980s. And yet now it's almost a ubiquitous part of the way Australia sees our world. So, you know, I don't certainly not putting any time frame on it. But if if a concept of a region makes sense in both economic and strategic and any other terms, then it will be adopted. And people will quickly, will just assume, well, that's obvious that that's a region and, and sort of almost assume that it has existed forever. And that's the weird thing about regions, that people, once they are adopted as part of their mental map, People just assume that they're obvious and that they have been around forever. I think that architecture underpins our notions of regionality. And I think that um, when you talk about whether how long is it going to take till it exists, we're talking about from Australia's perspective, aren't we? And that means we have, as I say, to have a clear idea of what we want to get out of an Indo-Pacific. And once we have that clear idea then I think if it's important to us, we need to put the same amount of diplomatic resources, energy and work into encouraging support for what we think is in our interests, as we did for the East Asian Summit and the APEC, uh, both of which have contributed to the notion of 
Asia-Pacificness and which were only acquired on the basis of years of practical hard work. So it's all up to Australia and to our leaders. If we think it's worth doing something for our national interests, then we're going to have to start doing a lot more than just talking about it. And just on a lighter note, I had another question from Jessie Richards. So within Australia, if the term continues to grow in popularity... At what point should the ANU College of the Asia and the Pacific be changed to the College of the Indo-Pacific? That's a a very, very good question. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to uh, (laughs) step into ANU politics, but I I would foresee that happening, uh, you know, at some stage in the future. Personally, I like being CAP rather than KIP, (laughs) but, you know. Well, my answer would go back to that nasty old bogey called funding. And I think that, <laughs> that if funding is there, perhaps provided by the government for something which is in its interest, then maybe we might see a change. But uh, so far, I don't see us being in that place just yet. Not just yet. So there's still a little bit of time, a little bit of kinks to work out about the Indo-Pacific, a lot of challenges, quite a few criticisms at the moment about the concept. But I would just like to thank you all very, very much for coming in and sharing your thoughts and your opinions about this concept. Thanks very Thanks much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, so there you have it. There's still so much more we could say about the topic, but we would be going on for hours and you'd be asleep in no time. Personally, I think that there are many things we need to be cautious of before diving headfirst into putting the Indo-Pacific into our foreign and strategic policy. There are so many challenges. Firstly, like it's such a vast and undefined region. There are so many players involved from great powers, middle powers, western powers. And of course, there's a question of what Australia's role might be in this new region. So if you had any thoughts, comments or feedback about this podcast or about the Indo-Pacific, please reach out to us on social media. We are on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook, Asia Pacific Policy Society, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed this podcast and are listening to it on iTunes, please give us a rating on iTunes. It would really help us out, especially if you give us a good rating. So now I just wanted to quickly touch on some comments that were placed on social media about our podcast last week. It was about Australia's new space agency and space industry with Anna Moore and Brad Tucker. If you hadn't listened to it, I would really recommend it. Following that podcast, Wally mentioned that the new space industry will benefit the few, but will see no return for Australia. And Graham noted that the Australian government has a housing crisis and we shouldn't be investing so much money into a space program in the first place. So Wally and Graham, these are all great points. But in my opinion, any investment that the government makes could always be spent on social welfare and could always be used to benefit the Australian people. But with this being said, Australia should be given credit for trying to put its foot in the door and trying to use the opportunities that space will give us. Anyway, keep your comments coming in and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on today's pod. Do you think that the Indo-Pacific is useful for Australia? Is it useful for for the region? Or do you think it's just a bunch of academics putting a new term in the world? So stay tuned next week for another insightful pod. And that's all from me, Maya. Thanks for sticking around.